0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello, good friends. Happy Friday. And it's time for this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Time to catch up on the news of the week from our nation's capital with three top political reporters. We've never seen a week like this one before. (laughs) It seems like we end every week like that these days, but it's certainly true of this one. For the first time in history, a speaker of the House of Representatives was tossed out of office by members of his own party. For the first time in history, a former president sat in a courtroom charged with breaking the law in what is only the first of several courtroom appearances to come by Donald Trump. And for the first time in history, a black lesbian woman took her seat as a member of the United States Senate. Well, we all need a long weekend to catch up after this one. But before we do, let's check in with today's panel to try to make some sense of it all. Joining us today, Melanie Mason, senior political reporter for Politico, uh, based in California. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Bill. Thanks for getting up early for us. Kirk Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline, based here in Washington. Hi, Kirk. Morning, Bill. And Arthur Delaney, congressional and political reporter for HuffPost and a neighbor on the Hill. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Bill. On this vote, the yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. The office of Speaker of the House
2: is hereby declared vacant.
1: Whoa, there it is, a stunning moment on the floor of the House, uh, that announcement made by Steve Womack from Arkansas, who is presiding. So, Arthur, who is Speaker of the House today? Nobody is,
3: Bill. <laughs> Although so, there, is, there is a, a, a temporary... Speaker named Patrick McHenry. Mm-hmm. Um, but he... What can he do? Well, he's supposed to just hold a speaker election for a real speaker, but they're going to have so much trouble with that that members of Congress are starting to wonder how long we will have Patrick McHenry as the speaker pro, pro tem. And and reporters are asking questions if that's going to be a thing for for multiple months. And Democrats are antsy about it and republicans are saying whoa 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 whoa
1: but the situation is unprecedented and nobody knows what's going on whoa whoa so um there is a race or a contest for the next speaker kirk who do we know who's running and when might they vote on
2: it well we have two confirmed candidates right now correct me if i'm wrong guys here but it's steve scalise who is the majority leader Um uh, under McCarthy and also Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And both of them are trying to, they've officially declared, and they're both starting the the jockeying right now, calling up their fellow lawmakers, trying to secure some outside endorsements. And Jim Jordan got a pretty big one last night. Uh, mm-hmm. Former President Trump endorsed him in a Truth Social post last night where he praised his athletic career in high school and in college and said that, Athletics, you know, teaches you so much, and Jim's such a great guy. He has my complete and total endorsement for uh, the speakership right now. Now we can expect this to really hit a fever pitch next week. You know, you talked about how this was an unprecedented week. Well, we're going to have an unprecedented week next week as well, as the Republicans try to nominate a speaker, and then that is going to have to go to a full floor vote as well. These are two very strong candidates. Scalise was seen as kind of the Chief alternative to McCarthy during the, the January marathon that if McCarthy were to ever bow out from his mm-hmm. first bid for speaker that he would the Scalise would step in. Jordan is a little bit more of a uh, was a dart horse candidate at that time. But now he's been really consolidating support and it's going to be another tight vote next week. It looks like right.
1: Uh, And by the way, Arthur and Melanie, jump in anytime. Or Kirk too, uh, if someone else is—if I've directed questions to someone else and you have something to add, Melanie, uh, I'm curious about the Trump endorsement. Um, Do we do you think do we think that will help or hurt Jim Jordan? And I'm curious, why didn't Donald Trump do anything to help Mike Kevin?
0: well when he that, was floundering that's a great question because remember mike Kevin made a lot of uh, of sacrifices to protect donald Trump in so many different ways and the fact that he stayed silent um I think is pretty telling I mean I, I think that the question of if it helps, Um, The endorsement helps uh, Jim Jordan or not, I think, depends on what sort of flank of the caucus you're talking about. I mean, from my vantage point, as I'm thinking about um, the vulnerable House Republicans sitting in seats that Biden had won, there's five of those in California, for example, um, how would they feel about a Speaker Jordan? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it's not like Kevin McCarthy, in terms of what he brought to the floor, did a ton to help out his moderates or his vulnerable members, but he did more than I think it's fair to say that Jordan would. And so this is going to be the real the real bind because these margins are so thin. You have the, you know, really energized sort of conservative flank of the party. Um, and Jordan's going to run this real outside game where he's going to really sort of get the support of, you know, the MAGA faction and outside media. Um, but then there are the the moderates or the people who are hanging on barely in districts that are very, very uh, swing or even tilt blue. Um, And I'm not so sure that they're going to love a conservative Darlene as a speaker, especially one who um, really does not shy from controversy like Jordan does.
3: Yeah. And some some of those moderates are disgusted by the way Kevin McCarthy was ousted. And I I tried to talk to one of them, uh, Stephen Lawler from New York the other day, and we asked about Trump getting involved in this. And he was like, don't even talk to me about that. Is that what you want to talk about? Is that what you want to talk about? He was like getting upset. So I don't, I don't, it's really unclear if the Trump thing helps. There's so many overlapping Trump connections for everybody. Like Kevin McCarthy sucked up to Trump. Jim Jordan is Trump's most obsequious uh, Mm. senior lawmaker right now. The people who threw McCarthy out were Trumpers. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who backed... McCarthy is a Trumper. So Trump's got his fingers in everything. Wow.
1: Uh, uh, Kirk, did I hear you trying to jump in there?
2: Yeah, I just want to say, even beyond Trump putting his fingers on the scale here, I'm thinking a lot that the how the ouster of McCarthy is going to impact those vulnerable members in California that Melanie mentioned, especially those ones in the Biden one districts, because McCarthy's been the most prolific fundraiser in the conference uh, for a few cycles now. And with him openly floating whether or not he's going to resign, what he's going to do with his his money, what's going to happen to his campaign finance apparatus, I'm thinking a lot about people like Representative John Duarte, David Valdeo, who's in the neighboring district from, uh, from McCarthy, who rely on McCarthy's resources, whether it's through the NRCC or his associated super PAC to get across the line in these very expensive, very tough districts and what they must be thinking right now as they see... You know Biden's the guy who's prosecuting this impeachment inquiry against Biden right now, inching closer to the gavel, so I'm going to be really interested to see how that plays out. Well, uh, so
1: I want to ask the question, Melanie, start with you, and I'd love to get Arthur and, and Kirk you to weigh in as well. and the question and Melanie if start with you because you're three thousand miles away, does it really matter who wins, Scalise in the long run Scalise or Jim Jordan isn't the real question: Can anybody govern? With this particular Republican makeup and this particular, uh, you know, Republican caucus.
0: I mean, I, speaking from my vantage point of 3,000 miles away, um, I mean, it feels like, yes, there is a lot of chaos in Congress right now, but when has there not been a lot of chaos in Congress, especially in this last year? I mean, thinking back to the 15 rounds of votes that McCarthy needed to win as Speaker, it does feel like we're just in this, this big blur um, of, of an ungovernable House. Um, so do we, if we move forward with, with more ungovernableness, um, is that going to be much of a surprise? To people west of the Rockies, uh, I'm I'm not so sure, um, but. You know, I, I do think just to get all civicy for a second, like it does matter if Congress is not functioning. I mean, they do need to fund the government. There does need to be sort of basic legislative um, uh, processes that happen. And yes, they have. There's a little bit of time pressure released because of this um, continuing resolution that passed last week, which of course is sort of what was the death warrant for McCarthy. Um, but you know, time flies pretty quickly. And if we find ourselves once again uh, staring at a looming government shutdown, and now we don't either don't know who the speaker is, or it's a speaker. Um, who is even less concerned than McCarthy was about keeping the government open, um, then I, I think that there's going to be serious implications even for all of us all the way out here.
1: So, Arthur, given the divisions, given the animosity uh, internally, right, inside the Republican Party, can anybody govern? No.
3: This? So, As it stands right now, they're not just ungovernable. The speaker election is unwinnable. Ooh. There has to be a major change and Trump's endorsement's not going to do it. But uh, I, I assume the, the internal conference debates that start on Tuesday will help. But a, it, as it stands right now, there's just no clear path for anybody to become the speaker. And it's totally possible that they don't even start having an, a, the election next week. They could, it, it could, And once they do start, it could take forever. So it's a total mess.
1: So fifteen times, <laughs> that may <laughs> that may seem easy, right? Compared to what, how long it will take for this next one? Right? Yeah,
3: I think in the eighteen hundreds they had one of these that went through forty ballots, and then they had to settle for a, a plurality speaker. So, and anything could happen. But the dynamic right now is that there's no way to please the nihilists who voted, who who initiated McCarthy's ouster. They did it with no alternative lined up. And for no reason that anyone can understand, except if you're looking at their own self aggrandizement, Yeah, the, the only motive that makes any sense. And it's obvious that that was a huge
1: factor. Uh, speaking of self aggrandizement, uh, love that word, Arthur. Uh, Kirk, uh, here is maybe the greatest self aggrandizer of all uh, in the caucus. And that is saying something. Uh, Matt Gates. So it's hard to make the argument that oversight is the reason to continue when it sort of looks like failure theater. It is going to be difficult for my Republican friends to keep calling President Biden feeble while he continues to take Speaker McCarthy's lunch money in every negotiation. Uh, it leaves little doubt why it seems like uh, all Republicans
2: do agree on one thing. They hate Matt Gates, Kirk, right? Well, uh, Bill, first off, thanks for playing that clip from Matt Gates and not just saying, hey, speaking of self-aggrandizing, Kirk. It seems like we're at the stage right now with Matt Gates in the uh, House Republican conference where Lindsey Graham had this quote about Ted Cruz from about 10 years ago when he shut down the government. He said something to the effect of if Ted Cruz was murdered on the floor of the Senate. And oh, the trials right. from the fellow senators, he would, you wouldn't get averted. I think that's where we're at right now with Matt Gates. If he was uh, murdered on the house floor right now and the jury, was his fellow Republicans. It, it he is pissing these people off so much. And to Arthur's point, it's, over working with the Democrats but he's not making any demands here either and this is the problem that we kind of n- knew would be coming with McCarthy's really narrow margins uh, for the majority right now you know you could talk a lot about how he lost the speakership by uh, wheeling and dealing with Democrats to keep the government open or when he made the uh, the Faustian bargain uh, to end that 15 vote marathon by lowering the threshold for the motion to vacate but mm. he really lost this sp- his this everything that happened this week could have been seen in last november when the red wave didn't materialize and he only had about a five-seat majority over democrats and it gave all the leverage to these most conservative hardline members and now they're finally using that leverage on him right now right um uh, arthur is
1: there a chance that they will throw matt gates out of the caucus I don't think so, uh, because too,
3: too many of them are saying that that is unhelpful. But that, that is what uh, people like Mike Lawler, the New York moderate, have been saying. Uh, but if you ask Jim Jordan or someone else, they say, let's look forward. And uh, I, I think yeah. it's unlikely. But that is, you know, that, that's what they did to Liz Cheney. So it's something right. they do like to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Melanie, there is another party, uh, members of another party in the House of Representatives <laughs> we haven't talked about yet. Uh, for now, uh, the Democrats are basically watching the, uh, the Republicans just self-destruct um, or make fools of themselves or whatever you want to use. Uh, is that the right role for Democrats or is this an opportunity for them to make a deal with whoever might be the new speaker um, you know, to get some of the things they want done, like getting the Biden impeachment dropped or whatever.
0: Well, I think in order to make a deal, you need somebody to make a deal with. And I think if you're looking at the options, at least of the people we know are running right now, I mean, I don't see Congressman Jordan being particularly keen to, um, you know, call up Hakeem Jeffries and say like, hey, like, let's let's figure out a way to make this out. I can't see any, Democrat thinking that it would be a good idea for them to vote for a Speaker Jordan. Um, Scalise, perhaps, or maybe there is another candidate. But the truth is, is I think Democrats have kind of coalesced around the idea of this is a Republican civil war. It's not our our job to bail them out. This was something that McCarthy um, did to himself. As Kirk said, it was this Faustian bargain. People could have kind of written this script in some ways um, months, months ahead of time. Um, and so it does seem like, for now, the Democratic caucus is is pretty unified in that. And I think that, you know, we do have to also consider that, you know, Democrats do have their own politics to, to think about here. I mean, when... There was appeals for Democrats to help out Kevin McCarthy in this vote. I think particularly the more progressive ones were thinking, what about our own politics? What would it mean for us in our districts if we voted for McCarthy to bail him out? He was somebody who's very unpopular with our voters. So uh, I think right now Democrats are, are, are perfectly happy to sort of sit back and watch this self-immolation. And um, I think that they're a little bit sick of, of maybe being the party that has to come in and, you know, for the good of good government. um Clean up this mess. I think they're they're holding back for the time being.
1: Uh, Arthur, it was impressive. I thought that Hakeem Jeffries was able to hold all Democrats together, uh, right? With no no help for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, you talked to a lot of Democrats. Is are they holding tight, or is there any movement toward um, you know maybe making a deal? I
3: thought that there would be a few Democrats who would bail McCarthy out, even with the leadership. Saying they didn't like that idea, but then when we started seeing the statements from Democrats, when that when that became uh, when when the time was nearing to do that, it was impressive how they were all on the same message. Uh, but I don't I don't credit Hakeem Jeffries. I credit Kevin McCarthy because they all called him an untrustworthy liar, mm-hmm. and that's true. That's how he has run the House. He has gone back on his word over and over. In in ways big and small, you know. Recently, for example, he put out this statement to Breitbart saying, "I won't open an impeachment inquiry by edict. It can only be done by a vote of the House." And then, like a few days later, he said, "I hereby declare an impeachment inquiry is open." Uh, but the the Democrats most frequently pointed to his statements after January sixth, when he said this was Donald Trump's fault. He said Donald Trump bears responsibility for this. A few weeks later. He goes to Mar-a-Lago groveling and poses for a photo with Donald Trump. He did more than anyone else to rehabilitate, to rehabilitate Donald Trump when he was a disgraced ex-president. He said there should be a January 6th commission. Then he said, well, it has to be a certain way. Democrats said, OK, we'll do it exactly the way you want. He said, never mind. These were all really serious betrayals that have had a massive impact on our politics, and Democrats won't let them forget it.
1: Plus, uh, uh, last Sunday morning, right, the day after Democrats did uh, join him and save him from shutting down the government, uh, he went on, I think, it was CNN and blamed the Democrats for the whole mess and said, because the problem was that Democrats were the ones who wanted to shut down the government, right? Yeah, that was the icing on the cake, <laughs> that, that and was... Hakeem
3: Jeffries made sure everyone saw that clip in their in their caucus meeting before right? it was time to vote.
1: Yeah. All right. Enough on the speakership. Let's take a quick break here and then get back to some of the other big news of the week. Donald Trump in the courtroom sitting there, not saying anything inside the courtroom, but saying lots of it outside the courtroom. We'll get to that and a whole lot more with today's panel. Melanie Mason from Politico, Kirk Beto from the National Journal, and Arthur Delaney from HuffPost. <laughs> Today's roundtable on the Ville Press Pod is brought to you by the members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, or the UFCW. Under the leadership of Mark Perrone, uh, they are America's union workers that most of us meet every day uh, more than uh, members of any other union because they're the ones that serve us in our great retail chains like nordstrom's or macy's our big grocery chains a safeway and ralph's and all the rest they're the ones who take care of our chemical plants our cannabis plants and our meat and poultry processing plants uh, the men and women of the ufcw serving us every day we salute them for their good work and thank them for their longtime support of the bill press pod
2: man that sunset is gorgeous
0: CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: And we're back with today's panel here on the Bill Press Reporters Roundtable. Arthur Delaney joining us, congressional and political reporter for HuffPost, Kirk Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline, and Melanie Mason, senior political writer for Politico, California. Melanie, uh, in terms of what we've never seen before, a former president walking into uh, a courtroom, sitting there and hearing the charges against him, accused of committing fraud against uh, breaking the law, against the people of New York State, taxpayers of New York State. Um, again, Melanie, it's never before. What do we make of this? I mean, how do reporters cover this just as a normal trial or as the history-making event it is?
0: Well, ideally, the latter. But of course, I mean, it is it is a regular trial. and It is interesting how the um, sort of accounts of the vibe in the courtroom shifted so much from the days when the former president was in the courtroom to then when he wasn't there, where it did seem like things reverted. Pretty quickly back to business as usual, um, but you know it was really fascinating to see him sitting at that defendant's table. I mean, we have seen him in, in court before um, when he's had to, um, you know, uh, plead to admit some of these many other charges, but not for such an extended period of time, and not, of course, when he would then be able to to you know leave the courtroom during breaks to then go and you know spout off, um, um, you know, outside of the courtroom, which of course then got him admonishment from the judge and and maybe some some serious legal consequences if you can't stop, um, which is the always the real question with the former president. Um, but watching him and just how glowering he was, <laughs> it's kind of the yeah. only thing I can think of. He just looked... Um, quite furious, because also this is I mean there are some very serious charges out there, but this one really goes to where it hurts. I mean this is questioning his wealth, which is obviously I think um, the thing that he holds most most dear, or at least the perception of his wealth is the thing that he holds most dear, and the fact that this is undercutting it, you can just tell how much this gets under his skin
1: uh, You talk about comments uh, and so inside the courtroom, they were uh, presenting uh, the prosecutors were presenting evidence that he 'd exaggerated the wealth of some of his properties. Uh, Donald Trump takes a lunch break. He can't resist talking to reporters on making his own case for how he valued his properties. Uh, Here he is. They put it down at 18 million and they said, I
3: I overvalued it because we had it valued at a much lower number than it's worth. And by the way, my financial documents are valued much less than my actual value, which nobody even knows.
1: But the financial documents that I gave to the bank are much less than my actual network. Well, if you can follow that, uh, good luck. He also took time out, of course, to attack the judge, to attack the judge's clerk, and to attack, of course, the attorney general of the state of New York. Uh, Kirk, anybody else on trial would not get away with making those kind of comments. Could there be any consequences for him if he continues that? along that line.
2: Well, I hate to play into the whole Teflon Don narrative here, but it just doesn't seem like it's having any real impact right now. Like you got to think back to all the way to 2015 and everything where part of his pitch To Republican voters was that he's a successful businessman, that he's done all this stuff all over the world. You know, you know me from The Apprentice, the casinos, the Trump wine, Trump steak and everything. And that I'm a different breed of politician than than I'm going to drain the swamp. That, you know, it's all predicated on my success in the private sphere. Well, this all undercuts that. And what I've been shocked at is I guess I shouldn't be too shocked. Again, we're in these all these unprecedented times that it's hard to really gauge the shock meter here, but how little his, and nominally, Republican opponents for the nomination are making his legal cases and his fitness for office a big election issue. I mean, if you look at the debate from just two weeks ago, he was only mentioned a handful of times, and he's still leading that field by 30, 40 points on average. No one has really made the case that Trump is unfit for office, besides the usual suspects like Chris Christie, who had that you know very canned line about Donald Duck and him ditching the debates. But no one is making this legal drama, this you know these allegations of fraud, his violent rhetoric against his opponents, as you mentioned, the judge and his clerk, or even you know the retired uh, former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a campaign issue. They're giving him a real hard political pass on it. so why wouldn't voters follow that lead as well?
1: Uh, Arthur, a question I, he, I, I, I've been I've been asked is uh, ask you why is why did Trump show up and he didn't have to show up. He didn't have to be in the courtroom. Why did he show up?
3: I think he's, he's, he's showing up so that he can raise money off it. That's what he's doing <laughs> it's It's part of his brand. I, I'm being witch hunted. send me yeah. money. Uh, and he needs that money to pay his bills. And, so, uh, so, so yeah. it was like like another campaign event, you mean, sort of, huh? Yeah, he's just using it for his brand and for his fundraising.
1: I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, and I guess we'll continue to do so. Um, so, before we move on, that does raise this. This again raises the question, I think, which is a challenge I see for all of us in the media: how to cover, and particularly for. Ooh. Reporters, how to cover Donald Trump. I mean, do you point out that what he's saying is just not true, or do you just report it? Do you point out, point out that he's lying, or do you just report it? I mean, that's a, that's a real challenge. Melanie, have, have you gotten get any direction along those lines, like from the LA Times or, the, or Politico, about when you're covering Donald Trump, here's what you've got to be sure to do?
0: I mean I think that that he's such an he's such an unprecedented politician that I think that um, we're constantly trying to to we're struggling I think with with how to cover him and I think about just the things that he said in the last 2 weeks I mean these violent threats um, against against General Billy for example I mean we have to cover them we have to say how how Unprecedented this is, but because there is so much of that, I think that there is there's a risk of it all sort of blurring together, or the outrage meter always being at eleven, and I think it then not really making much of an impact on on most of the audience. And um, you know, I don't think it's our job necessarily to go for what the results are. I think our job is to just report the truth. And if he is saying things that are a false or b you know wildly departing from what our norms are, then I think you have to say it as such. But it is difficult, right, I think, in terms of, of tone and th- in terms of, of how you're portraying it, because if everything is, you know, the the biggest breaking of norms that we've ever seen since the last time he broke the norms, um, it, it all kind of just sort of fades into the to, to the ether, I think, for the audience. And um, I think for the written media, I would I think it's a, maybe a little bit easier to to um, strike this balance. I think that where it's really hard is, is on television, on cable news, where you have this real blend of of, straight mm-hmm. reporting and then opinion. Um, and I think sometimes the tone can all just sort of just sort of blend into shouting. And that's when people just tend to tune out. You
2: know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of like his, the, how many people have successfully interviewed him on TV? You know, we were talking a few weeks, a few months back, actually, I when mean, he did that CNN town hall with Caitlin Collins and what a disaster that was. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily all on uh, Collins' shoulders. There it was just a, bad setup where it looked like where trump as he's really good at turned the audience against cnn against the media and used her as a prop and i think the only real televised interview that has been successful quote unquote in holding trump accountable might have been the axios interview jonathan swan did with him during uh, the pandemic where it was uninterrupted where they were just in in the white house it was one-on-one and swan came prepared, but if you think of how many interviews Trump has done over the last seven, eight years or so, and that's the only one that's really jumping out to me as a quote-unquote successful interview of Trump.
1: So why do they give him that platform? Why did NBC give him the platform and meet the press?
2: Well, I think that, that question strikes a little bit more to the dilemma that you're talking about here, Bill, of what are we supposed to do as journalists here? Because this is a, a former president, This is the current front runner here. And I don't think you can necessarily ignore him or cast him off to the side or dismiss him as too fringe for, um, you know, morning television here. You have to cover him. You have, it's not necessarily a question, I think, of giving him a platform, but doing it in the correct context. And you mentioned the NBC interview. And I think the best way you can do that is to do it pre-taped like they did and try and cut in as much as you can with fat-checking. But even then, I didn't think the NBC one was all that successful.
3: I I thought Kristen Welker did well. I thought she kept saying, sir, that's not true. Sir, that's not true. Answer my question. I thought she, uh, look at the eight-minute clip of abortion questions from that interview Mm -hmm. and is a good example of her uh, cutting him off or interrupting him and telling the audience that he was wrong or lying.
1: What about the rules at HuffPost for covering Donald Trump, Arthur? Well, there's no. I, I think HuffPost and the
3: rest of media actually does a decent job of reporting what he says and saying it's not true, and also saying it's lying when we know he knows it's not true. HuffPost, back when he was running for the first time, we had an editor's note that said he was a liar and said that he regularly incites political violence and that he was racist, and everyone ganged up on us for for uh, you know violating the norms of journalism, and now everyone without admitting we were right, says the same thing that we said in our editor's note, especially this past week where we're seeing all these scholars warning of Trump's violent rhetoric. Well, we told you so. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Um, Switching to uh, a totally different topic and and back to the West Coast, Melanie, it was just a week ago this morning that we learned of the death of uh, Senator Dianne Uh, and within a couple of days, uh, Gavin Newsom uh, surprised a lot of us by making uh, an appointment, a, appointing her successor uh, quicker than we expected, uh, someone we hadn't really expected to get the job. And despite what he had said earlier, placing no restrictions on the ability of Lafonza Butler to run for Dianne Feinstein's seat after this temporary uh, appointment is, uh, is, is over in a, in a year. Uh, What was the reaction, and uh, how's that playing in California?
0: Well, I think there's been a lot of reactions. I mean, this this has been a really emotional week in, in California, right? Because I think that in some ways this felt inevitable. We knew that Senator Feinstein was ailing that her health was, was, you know, that she was very ill, but it was still pretty shocking um, when, when she passed away and she is just such, she was just such a giant in California politics. And so I think that there was this moment of processing even for the governor himself. I mean, they are, they were very, very close friends. They had known each other for decades Um, and I think even that, that Friday morning, even as he and his top advisors within minutes were getting incoming from people who either wanted the seat um, or allies of people who wanted the seat, you know, they had to take a beat to just sort of process what had just happened. Um, the thing is, is that there weren't very many beats to take because at that same time, there was a thought that they were careening towards a government shutdown. Um, and it was possible that Democrats needed a that vote as soon as possible. So this was just a sort of... Um, trying to 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 both process these these various heavy emotions but also having this insane time pressure on them um, and in some ways you know um senator Butler's name LaFontaine Butler's name was not necessarily one that we had heard a lot in the lead up to uh this conversation. There was a whole parlor game of all the politic uh, people that it could have been. But once you heard the name, it made a lot of sense, um, both in terms of him being able to um, avoid some of the complicated politics with Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's running for that seat. And she very openly wanted that appointment. Um, But that would have maybe affected the dynamics of the Senate race going forward. Um, But but also because. Butler is a very known entity to Newsom and to the people in his circle, and when you have to make a decision as quickly as he had to and under those circumstances, to me it's no surprise that he went to someone that he had a relationship with. Um, So I think in terms of how it's playing out here, I think for the most part people think that this was um, a pretty pretty savvy move, but a savvy move to get him out of a box that was of his own making. I mean, th- this goes back to him making this commitment when he had appointed Senator Padilla for Vice President Harris's seat, that he would appoint a black woman. Um, and then for you know, the years that have followed, it's always been this question of how is he going to get out of this jam? Um, <laughs> he's gotten out of it, I think, now, for now. Of course, the next looming question is, does Senator Butler herself run? In which case, that opens up a whole other Pandora's box of, of difficult political questions for him. But I think for the time now, he and his team feel pretty happy about where this all ended up. They um, feel like this was a res- they were able to respect the memory of Senator Feinstein, make a choice that they that they feel good about. That they think she would feel good about, and for now, sort of satisfy the various factions that all had an interest in in who this appointment would be.
1: Uh, and Arthur um I must say even though I'm former Democratic chair of California uh, Alfonso Butler was not uh active in the political uh wars back so I don't when I was there so I don't really know her but um you know she's president former head of the largest labor union in California um she is now for 2 years been the head of Emily's list which is a you know, one of the biggest fundraising Giants in the de- in democratic politics, um, she looks like someone who could have a real impact uh, in the United States Senate, short term or long term. What's the read you're getting?
3: Well, reporters asked her, "Are you going to run? Are you going ah, to keep that seat?" Yeah, and she says, "I genuinely don't know," and i I don't think she's lying. I think she genuinely doesn't know. You know, a lot of people say that they're keeping their options open and they know what they want to do. Yeah. 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 But I think, I think she's as surprised as everybody else. This <laughs> is, there is, there, this is major drama though. Uh, the congressional black caucus wants Barbara Lee, the mm-hmm. representative from California to win that Senate seat. And they are happy for Lafonza Butler, but reiterating their support for Barbara Lee. So it's not, it's
1: not hers for the taking. Yeah. Uh, Kirk, it really does shake up, as Melanie indicated, and Arthur, the California Senate race, because you had three announced candidates, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter and Barbara Lee. And now, <laughs> right, uh, suddenly the possibility of a fourth candidate who would be the
2: incumbent senator. Absolutely. And it, the the issue here was that, not issue, but the dynamics here that Newsom had promised that he would appoint. Um, a black woman uh, to fill out the remainder of the term if it became open. And he said in an interview with NBC a few months ago that he wasn't going to pick anybody who's already running uh, for yeah. the 2024 term, the 2025 term outright. So that angered Barbara Lee, who's a uh, uh, black Congresswoman then knew some bat trat and said, you know what I'm open to do to appointing uh, someone who's already running, but then he still didn't end up going with Lee. The problem with Butler, if she does get into the race right now, is that she is going to start off at a very significant fundraising disadvantage right now. Adam Schiff has, I think, $32 million cash on hand right now. I mean, the interest of the money he has in the bank right now is more than some House members are making in a full fundraising quarter right now. Uh, Katie Porter is also raising a significant amount of money. Barbara Lee is as well. And while a lot,
1: a lot less so,
2: a lot less. A lot. A, Adam Schiff is has I think several money printers in his basement, but <laughs> Porter and uh, Lee are also you know raising decent money for a Senate race. This is going to be the most expensive race of the cycle next year, you know, just as California's the media market there is so pricey. And so the reason we keep asking Butler, like, "Hey, you're going to jump in?" is because she's really got to start uh, tapping in to all that that great donor network that she has at. Emily's List and her past career um, as a political strategist, because she really needs to start hitting the ground running if she wants to make a serious run here.
1: All I would add is that if there's any one organization uh, that if called upon and when called upon could give Adam Schiff a run for his money in fundraising, it's Emily's List. Absolutely. Yeah, They've been at it since 1985, hugely successful uh, with their focus. Um, So just the last thing I wanted to touch on, Arthur, when we talk about never before in history for this week, I guess you would have to add, and I know you've written about this, uh, never before in history have we seen a Senate jacket stuffed with so much cash, Uh, right? (laughs) And yet, Arthur, it looks like, Things have quieted down. It looks like Menendez is going to ride this whole thing out and not resign. That's right. And that's the uh, key to surviving
3: a political scandal when you're in elected office. Don't resign. And then you, you will remain in that office. But this is different. Uh, Menendez's Democratic colleagues really don't like it. And he's going to get he's getting primaried by Andy Kim, a House member from New Jersey, and uh, I'm not an expert on New Jersey politics, but I think that's going to be a major problem for him next year.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, only, I don't know how this plays on the West Coast, but uh, at first there was just maybe John Fetterman, right, stood up and said Menendez ought to resign. But he was within 24 hours. There were what a total of maybe 30 Democrats who said he should resign, but um, not Chuck Schumer was not one of them.
0: Well, look, I mean, I, I think the, the pictures of, as you said, the, the, the jackets with uh, gold bars and cash stuffed envelopes. I mean, you know, if, I, I would say, yes, it is making an impression on the West Coast just because um, everybody loves a good salacious indictment. Um, but I think to Arthur's point, I mean, this is this is the the playbook now for, for surviving political scandal, even if it's just in the short term. I mean, who knows what's going to happen um, when he runs for re-election, particularly getting this challenge. But I think that he's made this calculus and I don't think that he's wrong just by what we've seen from other politicians that uh, the news cycle is uh, changes over rapidly. People's attention spans are short, and if you can kind of ride out the initial wave, that you know people's attention will, will move to something else. So, it's not yeah. to say that he's not going to have a reality check either through this actual, uh, you know, charges that he's facing um, or from a political challenge. But it seems like he's been able to sort of ride this out because we go through weeks like this where there's a billion other news stories that are happening.
2: Yeah, yeah he could. He might go to prison though. Right. right. So, the, right.
0: The, yeah, it may not be a happy ending for him. I think that that's a
2: fair thing. To say. <laughs> well, and, and let's just talk about it one more time here the political consequences. Andy Kim's already launched a uh, a challenge to him. He's already raising you know decent enough money for only being in the race for uh, a week or, week or so. But he there were a pair of polls that were out this week from uh, groups that had endorsed Andy Kim. There was some head to head testing. There was favorability numbers and. Uh, for Menendez and his favorability is underneath underneath where Chris Christie's was when he left office. <laughs> wow. And if you're below Christie numbers in New Jersey <laughs> right now, as a yeah. Democrat, you know, uh, you're in a lot of trouble. Again, the primary isn't uh, until June. And uh, look, these are all allegations right now, folks, you know, uh, those gold bars could have been anything. So let's uh, not bury him quite yet. But the poll, the early signs are not looking great. If he does decide to dig his heels and and try and stick this out, this is a lot different than the last time he ran for re-election yeah, under yeah. the the, sh- the shroud of controversy during the last corruption trial in 2018. Andy Kim is a real deal. He's a real candidate. He's a real challenger. And I think you're seeing the worm really turn on Menendez now. By the way, I think those Chris Christie numbers were single digits, right? Wasn't he? <laughs> I think it was about like 17 15% or something. Oh, like that it was, it it's, it's not pretty. Yeah. I if, was, if we're if we're arguing over you know teens or uh, low single or high singles, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're in trouble exactly. All right. Well, so as I said at the top, after this week, we need a good long weekend to recover, and we've got one coming up ahead of us here. But before we let you all go into the weekend, uh, let's just take a moment moment out to think about what might have been of all the stuff we were writing about and reporting on this week. What was a once or even something you were not covering, what was the one story that caught your attention? Your favorite story
2: uh, of the week?
1: Where do we start? Kirk, please start us off.
2: Right. Uh, you know, this is not politically related at all. I started. That's my good. Week, I I started my week with uh, Rolling Stone magazine. They did an incredible oral history of what I think is one of the cinema's modern marvels. Uh, it was the 20th anniversary of Jack Black's School of Rock uh, at the end of September. That's the movie where he plays a uh, kind of a, a loser roommate to a substitute teacher. He's in a band, big like Led Zeppelin, ACDC fan, and he goes and fakes being a substitute teacher in a very stodgy prep school. And it basically forms a rock band out of the kids there. And it's a great movie. It's one that I grew up with a lot. And I really enjoyed revisiting it in the oral history that Rolling Stone published earlier or later last week and got to around Monday. So Rolling Stone's oral history of school rock. Nice to
1: get uh, away from politics for a while, right? (laughs) Uh, And something like that. Yeah. How about you, Arthur? What caught your attention?
3: My colleague, Jen Bendery at HuffPost, did a piece in defense of Bob Menendez, who among us has not Googled how much is one kilo of gold worth? <laughs> St- and, for, and what she did, she actually went and asked all Bob Menendez's colleagues if they had Googled the value of a kilo of gold, as Bob Menendez allegedly did, according yeah. to the indictment. And, uh, for example, th- you know they said they hadn't. Uh, and John Hickenlooper told her, "I have never even seen
2: a gold bar." <laughs> I, I will admit, I did Google that after I saw that in the indictment, and I was. Oh yeah, was well the the the, 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 uh,
3: the asking price
1: for a bar of gold is in the piece. I won't give it away. <laughs> ah, in Jen Bendry's piece, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Jen Bendry, good friend of the program. She hasn't been on our Reporters' Roundtable for a while. We'll Had to get her back, too. She's a, she's a great friend. Uh, okay, cool. From from Rolling Stone to Gold Bricks and Melanie, uh, bring us up to date. Your favorite story.
0: Well, first of all, I just want to say that all of these gold bars conversations make me think of one of the weirdest things in um governor newsom's financial disclosures which is that he has like quite a few silver bars um so hmm. i feel like we're maybe there is a trend story here where we just need to find out like how many politicians Whoa, um, have Gavin. gold Go, or Gavin. silver little bars did, in their in their possession yeah. um and i think I'll, I'll i will bring us back to um to i mean back to politics and back to california first for a bit i mean as soon as the news of senator feinstein broke as a political reporter i had to be the sort of Um, gross person texting people of who's going to replace her and what's going to happen with the politics. And um, reading this particular column by my former colleague and very good friend, Mark Baraback, um, about her memorial service yesterday, kind of brought me back into this place of of how momentous um, this moment is, how important this person was to California and particularly um, to her city. So this column that he wrote, it's called In Last Farewell to Feinstein, San Francisco Celebrates Its Forever Mayor. Um, And I just can't recommend it enough when you're Talking about, um, first of all, Mark is is the person I'd want to read on this. It's about, about the city that he loves, about a person that he covered very closely, um, and it's just in in midst of a lot of the politicking. It was a good level set and a good reminder of, um, you know, the the many decades of political history that we were talking about here. Um, who and in Senator Feinstein who passed away last week.
1: Uh, and you know, I have to say, uh, since I knew Senator Feinstein very well. Um, and met her first in San Francisco when she was running for her first political office, um, that that designation, San Francisco's forever mayor is really one that fits there. And I thought it was really striking that here's um, a major leader in the United States Senate who passes away. uh, And yet she lay in state in the San Francisco city hall and her service was held on the steps of the San Francisco city hall. Not here in Washington, D.C. I think people recognize, you know, that was her home. Uh, that's where she started. That's the state that she served for so long and and so well. Um, and uh, that's where I think she would have wanted to be, wanted to be and where she would have wanted this service to uh, to take place. Um, let me just say, my <laughs> so for my favorite story of the week, look, we all cover politics and we all uh, talk to these politicians and we hear their back and forth uh and yet uh, we're somewhat cynical about it but every once in a while we really do uh enjoy a good political put down uh and i thought uh, one of the best that i've seen in a long time happened this week and it had to do with donald trump the wacky idea that some people put forward That Donald Trump should be the next Speaker of the House, which is crazy just to think he would even take that job. And there are questions, of course, of whether he would have been eligible because uh, he has been indicted. But at any rate, the one who was really pushing it was Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, who said, How wacky can you get? Uh, She said, He's the only, Donald Trump is the only candidate I can support. And then she gushed and said, Having Donald Trump in the house would be like having a trump rally at the capitol every day (laughs) Uh, and the put down came from chuck schumer who simply said we've already seen one one trump rally at the capitol we don't need another one (laughs) good for chuck schumer i thought that kind of said it all and put that put that down and with that we say a great big thank you to today's panel to arthur delaney congressional political reporter from HuffPost. Thank you, Arthur Kirk Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline. Thank you, Kirk and Melanie Mason. Joining us now as senior political reporter for Politico in California. Thanks to you, members of the panel, and thanks to all of our good friends for joining us today. Now, uh, you know, the job is to go have a great long weekend uh enjoy indigenous people's day on monday if you have it off or if you don't and then come back and see us tuesday for the next edition of the bill press pod thanks for joining us have a good one